Coast 104.5. It is up in Adam in the morning. My name is Adam Montiel. Excited to welcome to the show Dr. Penny Borenstein. She's up in Adam in the morning. She is Slow County's Public Director of Health. Hi, Adam. It's Penny Borenstein. Penny Borenstein, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. It is such a privilege to talk to you. Thank you for the time. I can only imagine. I mean, you know what? I probably can't imagine how busy you are. Oh, but... sure you can. Lots of people are working their tails off. First, I want to thank you so much for your hard work. I don't know if ever in your journey into medicine up to this point, did you ever think that you would be the public health director of the county you live in during a global pandemic? You know, actually, we planned for this for a long time, so it shouldn't be a surprise, but I think that I didn't understand how much more intense it would be than other types of major communicable disease outbreaks I've lived through. Well, you know, I got to tell you, the community can tell that you are doing your best, and also, even better, you're doing a great job. Oh, thank you. I know there are a lot of plates that are required that you, you know, have to keep spinning. And I talked to so many that have a lot of nice things to say about you. A mutual friend of both of ours, uh, Dr. Tom Spillane, who we've had on the show uh, several times for the good work he does in the community, just had so many nice things to say. And, and he is like, Adam, you're just going to absolutely enjoy uh, talking to Penny so much. So thank you, doctor, for being here. <laughs> oh, thanks. Now, by the way, we interviewed Robin Babb, one of your sign language interpreters. Isn't she fun? She is wonderful, and she is so great in how well she puts up with me. I've been, I'm always apologizing after because she is given the talking points that I am given yeah. that I then ignore. Um, <laughs> so I don't ignore them. I know what it is. I work with our information team in knowing what messaging we want to get out, right. and they are superb writers, and they get it dialed in. And then um, I try I try to take that messaging and just make it a little bit more spontaneous. So poor Robin um, <laughs> has to go with it. She is awesome, and you guys work well together. Yeah. So I've been trying to be as careful as possible. Saw some family several weeks ago. We stayed in the backyard. During the time my cousin becomes emotional over something she's going through, I hug her. She tells me that next week she's positive for COVID-19. I'm like, oh, great. I go on lockdown. I wait until the right amount of time passes after my exposure. I get tested. I wait. It's negative. Never had symptoms. I never got it, which is I'm just like thankful, you know, so thankful. Was I super lucky? Does that kind of exposure normally cause a transmission? Did I do the right thing? Did I overreact? So I'm constantly telling the public to find the balance between feeling like you have to be 100% distant and careful because fleeting interactions, like I've used the example of passing someone on the street, is highly unlikely to transmit COVID. Even a brief hug um, is unlikely to transmit COVID unless, you know, you're really face-to-face. Right. Um, and, someone, and, and especially if the person's coughing. However, as the public health director, I don't want to give all of that leeway because it's a slippery slope. And so I ask of people that they do their absolute best but not be completely obsessed with, you know, being inhuman in moments when an appropriate short hug 
you know, carefully done, hand fan after if you really want to go the extra measure, um, so that we retain our humanity throughout this event. Yeah, I love that you said that. But, you know, the flip side of that story is uh, I have some other family who just looked at it a lot differently than I did and were like, no, I'm not getting tests. Why would I get tested? I'm like, I don't know, because 40% could be asymptomatic. You hugged, I don't know, maybe that's considered an exposure. But they're like, I don't want to be tracked. I don't want to be part of the system. I'm like, huh? So people are, you're, you got to be seeing this dynamic. And how is it affecting the approach of how we, how we manage this as a community? Yeah, so, you know, there's a wide spectrum of response, and I continuously try to find the middle ground so as to not lose um, the audience, if you will, in terms of, again, people being tuned in, knowing how to behave to prevent transmission, but not being, you know, extreme on one side or the other. We definitely hear from people who flaunt all of our recommendations and say this is a nothing disease and I take that to be a really poor approach because it is now the third leading cause of death in America. Um, so to say it's a nothing disease is is a ridiculous statement. Right. On the other hand, I have people who literally have not left their house in six months and and, and there's health consequences to that. So we really do collectively need to adhere to the guidance and do our part, however unpleasant it is and however long-winded it seems it is, however, you know, forever it feels like it will go on. But, you know, we all can remember times in our life that were really tough for other reasons that lasted a period of months or a year or more, um, and, and we get past those and we move back to life as we know it, and, and that will happen here. So, yes, we do need to do all of these things to prevent transmission because transmission, first of all, we're learning more about the disease. It is a serious disease. So to dismiss, oh, cases doesn't matter. It only should be about people who are dying. Um, That's an understatement. But the cases do beget hospitalizations and deaths. And so though I think what's hard in this county is for reasons that we continue to not be able to totally get our arms around is we have been relatively spared based on our case numbers in terms of the number of people in ICU, in terms of the number of deaths. We have lower rates than other places. But we are geographically next to places that have had much worse experiences. And if we turn a blind eye to it, we can very well be the next you know, epicenter. I know that that sounds dramatic, but but it's true with a with an infectious disease. Well, I feel like you're just, you're seeing it even like you look at the country. You're seeing a lot of like Midwest places are coming down with it because they just didn't get it first. Do you worry about being so behind the curve? And I know we are the envy of a lot of, if not all, the counties around us. Are we so behind the curve where that in and of itself is uh, is something cautious for you? Yeah. So I we hear a lot about this idea of. You know, maybe the places that have had really bad experiences are done, um, but they're not because nobody is at this concept of herd immunity where enough people have been infected that there is community-wide immunity. So even New York or Louisiana or Italy, you know, some of those examples that I give over and over again that had really bad experiences for a period of time, I think that they are collectively heeding the guidance much more judiciously, and that's why they're not seeing it again. But look at England is locking down again. Israel is locking down again because 
until we get to herd immunity or a vaccine or very effective treatment where it isn't that big a deal to have disease spread. If, you know, those are the only things that are going to get us back to not wearing masks, hugging people without, you know, cause for concern, gathering in large groups. Because even the places that have experienced really high numbers and really bad outcomes could be right back there if they let down their guard. Okay, L.A. County. And so, and so that, that applies to us. It applies to Imperial County. It applies to right. Brazil, you know, et cetera. Great point. Penny Bornstein is the public health care director. Okay, L.A. County came out saying that they were prohibiting Halloween trick-or-treating. They had to walk it back a little bit and say it's not recommended. Where do you stand in your team on Halloween, and what do you want first parents of trick-or-treaters to know, and then the younger adults or any adults that like to go hard on Halloween? Will Slow County kids be able to trick-or-treat? What can you tell me about Halloween? Yeah, so first of all, um, this county has been out in front of lots of issues that have come up over the past six months. Um, you know, one great example is that we had our roadmap plan, the start guide, if people remember that. Um, every, it seemed, we, we joke here at the County Emergency Operations Center that the state will issue guidance a day after we do, um, because that has been our experience. And so with Halloween, we had said we were coming out with clear guidance, and then literally the very next day on a state call, the state indicated that they plan to issue guidance. That may still be a couple of weeks out. Thankfully, we have enough time to provide the community with important information about Halloween, but I am reluctant to say anything until I see that state guidance because time and time again, we have put ourselves in a situation of having distinctions between what the state is telling people and what the county is telling people, and that creates confusion. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to park the issue of Halloween um, for right now, but we absolutely will put our local impromptu on what the state guidance says, but we're, we're waiting to see that. Fair enough. Dr. Penny Borenstein, San Luis Obispo County's Director of Public Health, is up and at him in the morning. Coming up, we're going to ask her about uh, the Cal Poly situation. Cal Poly's been in the news with their numbers and more. Dr. Penny Bornstein is up and Adam in the morning. Coast 104.5, thank you so much for being up and Adam in the morning. My name is Adam Montiel. On the phone, she is the Slow County Public Health Director. Dr. Penny Bornstein is up and Adam in the morning. Things are always changing and evolving. Yeah. And then you're also modeling, so you have to kind of, you know, guess the future a little bit, which is tough. One thing you have to navigate is uh, the thousands of students arriving uh, for Cal Poly. Is that like a whole other animal for you to work with and kind of understand? Yeah, so Cal Poly definitely gave us um, some heartburn, as it did their college president. He'll be the first to tell you, as well as their leadership team. Um, it was, once again, an example of trying to find the middle ground and not, you know, do some alternative version of harm to our community, to our college community, um, by you know, having a, just a, a really hardcore lockdown message. But in bringing that large number of individuals into our community, although we think quite a few of them were already here all along, right. in fact, perhaps the majority, but we worked very closely with Cal Poly leadership 
to develop the most stringent plans that we could to provide the greatest protection. So limiting dormitory numbers, you know, everybody in singles, you know, closing off all the common spaces, limiting the classes to only 12%, those that can only be done in person. You know, the, the testing um, paradigm that we put together, lots of, lots of ways in which we have been trying to be as fiercely responsive to this awful virus as we can, but without a complete shutdown of higher education. Right. And, met- only, and thus far, and, you know, I'm always reluctant to make any predictions or pat ourselves on the back prematurely. Right. Um, thus far our college campus has been doing reasonably well. Now, I understand they have well over 150 of these isolation rooms for those on campus that get COVID, but those rooms, as I understand it, are for students who live on campus only. And who knows right now, maybe there's like less than 10 of those positive students, but off campus, that number is significantly higher. And yes, they're living in singles on campus, but off campus, we know they're living in shared spaces with three, six, maybe nine other people, who knows? This demographic also knows that, statistically speaking, they're going to be virtually fine if they get COVID. The larger community concern is who they give it to. Now, you take that hypothetical living situation with, say, seven students in a house. One gets it. They're on their lockdown for 10, whatever days. But the housemates that have to do it concurrently, then they have to wait an extra 14 days, totaling 24. I mean, setting aside the obvious question, is it even realistic to expect a 22-year-old who isn't even confirmed positive to lock down for 24 days? Doesn't it seem smarter to pull that positive student out of the house, bring them on campus to one of these over 150 empty rooms that they have on campus for isolation? I mean, these are their students that are positive. Shouldn't Cal Poly allow access to these isolation rooms to these off-campus students rather than let the vast majority just sit empty while off-campus numbers continue to grow and grow? Wouldn't that be a better steward of public health, and not only of their students, but of the community as a whole. Well, so so what I would say about that from the county's perspective, um, and I'll let you talk to Cal Poly about their operational decisions. But but for us, we um, we do support any community members, be they college students, farm workers, restaurant workers, anyone who is in a living situation where they cannot safely isolate at home. We have had um, instances of housing through our county program in situations where it's warranted, and we would make that same offer regardless of the nature of the resident. Um, as to Cal Poly supporting isolation and or quarantine for their off-campus students, that's a question that's really for them. Now, are people dying less from covid because it's it's running a course, or are people dying less because maybe the hospitalizations are better treated? We know we have a little bit more uh, weapons in our arsenal now to deal with it. Absolutely the latter. You know, physicians, um, especially in intensive care and, and hospitals, started out treating this much like a flu um, because it had similar respiratory symptoms, but they've just learned a ton over time as to what works better. So, Simple things like putting a patient on a belly, even when they're on a ventilator, that was something that was never really thought of before with other diseases. Um, Using steroids, but using them now over time, understanding when in the course of disease to use it. This one medication that's been approved, remdesivir, again, it's uh, it's about timing and the particular nature of disease in 
in different patients. And so, yes, um, the short answer is our hospital staff have become much more tuned into the best ways of treating, even though the treatment options are still quite limited. You hear chat about a vaccine now and both sides and I hate to say sides, this is something that doesn't belong on sides, but you see people politicizing everything. If a vaccine does come out, whenever it does, will it be safe? Will you take it? What do you say to those who might be like, oh, I don't know? Um, so I have followed FDA and CDC over many years of vaccine development and the leadership um, They are not political leaders. They are scientists. They are medical health experts. And um, everything I have read about vaccination, I am a huge fan about the efficacy and safety of vaccines. And I have faith in our United States system that we will not release a vaccine until it is proven to be safe and also efficacious. So I will, you know, actually we've talked about this also in our EOC, I would say there's going to be a push for someone like me as an essential worker to be at the front of the line. I probably won't be because I think there are people that really need it ahead of me, um, our healthcare workers, our first responders. But um, from a personal perspective, I will absolutely line up to get a vaccine. No matter when it comes out. So if it comes out before the election, people should worry Whatever side politically they sit on, they shouldn't think. They just shouldn't think like that. If if a vaccine comes out, it's because scientists have deemed it safe. Is that right? I I believe that there are enough people in charge of the clinical trials that would refuse any political mandate to prematurely issue a vaccine. That's good to hear, Penny Bornstein. She is the uh, director of public health. I remember. I just I, I think of. You sitting up at night, or do you? How, how are you relaxing at home? Are, are you losing sleep over this? How are you getting enough sleep? What What are you doing to stay sane? Oh, I'm not exercising as much as I used to and would like. That's a time constraint. But I've been binge watching The Crown of late. That's been great fun. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, some nights are better than others. Some nights I wake up and and write you know, in my little notebook next to my bed. And then other nights I sleep through the night like a lamb. So it's very variable. Hey, one thing that kind of came up, and I'm not even bringing this up for any, like, political response, but when, and and again, I'm I'm coming off the stipulation that we all, you know, what what we, the nation, what we've been dealing with as far as, like, racism and stuff, it's it's abhorrent, and uh, I think we all know where we, we all stand on that. But with everything that you got going on, for the mayor to be like declaring a public health emergency over racism and putting you on the spot like that and making what you're doing political, was that a little bit like, man, like I got, I got enough going on right now. And it really seems like most people feel like a public health emergency declaration should come from you, our public health director. Well, how did you, how did you feel that? So there have been two cities actually that um, have promulgated racism as a public health emergency. It's a very tough issue. As I told both of them, that we are not going to do an executive order of that type at this time, but I certainly am aware of the fact that there are racial and socioeconomic, but especially racial um, health disparities. It's an important issue. It's one that the public health department has had its eyes on for a very long time. We will continue to do so. In the face of COVID, it has come to the fore, uh, as well as many other issues. So, I'm I'm not in any way offended by um, jurisdictions who have um, felt that they wanted to step out on this issue. It's an important issue. Um, 
it's just the, the time is is not right for us to be um, declaring it as a public health emergency, given everything else that's going on in our community. Understood. Dr. Penny Bornstein is up and Adam in the morning. She's our Slow County Public Health Director. We'll finish and wrap up with her coming up next. Coast 104.5, thank you for being up and Adam in the morning. My name is Adam Montiel. I'm thrilled to have on the phone Dr. Penny Bornstein. She is the Slow County Public Health Director. been asking her any and all things. And if you're just coming into the interview, we've had two really great long segments with her. It'll be posted all in its entirety at coast1045.com and free on the app. So remember like in the beginning of this, April, May, we were disinfecting every grocery thing as it came in the house. And what 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 are certain things? I mean, we've learned that this is not so much of a surface contact thing as much, I guess it can be, but um, what type of things are, you know, is it safe to go out to eat? Do you, do you go out to eat here and there? And uh, are, are there certain things that we can kind of slowly feel better about as we inch closer to just, I mean, achieving some sort of normalcy, right? Yeah. So I, I like to think of the infection risk as a gradient, not a, a, a yes or no, right? So there, there's this concept of viral load. You need a certain number of viruses to get into your system in order to actually become infected. So being exposed does not mean infected. Um, and so you need a viral load that, that causes infection. So, you know, if you have a couple of viruses on a pen that you touch after someone who's infected and you rub your nose, that's not likely to cause infection. But if you did that 15 times in the day, it might. So it's, it all, all of the responses that I recommend, and people give me a lot of grief that we were so slow on the mask order. It wasn't that I didn't recommend Mass for it's just a matter of how autocratic we need to be in order to help people develop routine ways of living in this pandemic um, to provide protection. And so it's based on how much disease we have at a given time. We're in a very different place now than we were in May. And so, you know, consistently I said mask was an extra piece of protective measure. It is now becoming very clear that it is the you know most important alongside um, all the other things we've always said in public health: good hand hygiene and and stay home when you're sick and keep physical distance. And and with COVID, more and more, it, this is nothing new. But um, but the way COVID has largely been spread in our community is people coming together in great numbers, um, especially because we've understood now how it can be spread with from people without symptoms. So. So all of these things are additive measures that people should do as much of the time as they can, as consistently as they can, um, but, you know, without getting into a fist fight over the fact that someone may not be wearing a mask outside and passes you on the street. And it's funny because in your position, there's so many, I mean, like the CDC has gone back and forth on that. Like you said, you'll make a reg, you know, you're talking to your team about a regulation and the state may come a day later and say something totally different. So I imagine there is so much hard work that, you, you know, you're putting into this that at times can just in a moment just be, you know, like a deck of cards gets blown off the table. Yeah. And I would say, um, you know, I, I try to stay away from any political dialogue in sure. this event, but I think as you move up in the sectors from local to state to federal, it gets more politicized. Yeah. And so I think we 
locally have had the benefit of relatively not having this disease be as politicized as we see in other places. And so, you know, I, I, I think that some of what you see in some of the dynamics of recommendations coming from other levels of government, you know, does have a political bent. And so I just work really hard to, to be, I know we hear it from every level of government. This is based on the science. Um, we do locally really work hard to, to base our decision-making on the information that's in front of us. You know, you're, you're so right, because I think of, like, even the, the public health director in L.A. County is in some hot water now for something she said about we'll open schools after the election, and she says this twice, and then, of course, people are like, oh, is this political? But you and your team have done such a good job of just making it about the community, and I, uh, I can't thank you enough for keeping us all informed and riding the wave that is this state of California, which, you know, it's, again, constantly ever-evolving as well as even, you know, locally. And um, really, thank you. First of all, it was a great to, a chance to talk to you. And I thank you for answering all these questions just so openly and honestly. And uh, it really is a, a pleasure of mine to even get a chance to meet you here and, and to have you up and Adam in the morning. Well, thank you, Adam. It's really fun when I can just have this kind of laid-back conversation with members of our community. So thank you for the opportunity. Up and Adam in the morning. Up and Adam in the morning.